WAGP Buford. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible Line. If you happen to be a first-time listener, for the next hour, we take questions live here in the studio. The numbers are 843-525-1859. The South Carolina 843 Exchange, 843, the number is 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. So you have a question about a a uh, passage of Scripture you've been studying, an issue you've been facing in your personal life. If we can be of help, by God's grace, we will. And uh, you can email us at TBL, that stands for The Bible Line, TBL at net, and the questions will come here directly to us. And so we have a lot of questions that come in from a lot of different places, and so we do our best to respond to them. Sometimes it takes us a month or two before we can get to a question, but Sooner or later, by God's grace, we will do our best. So let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. A lot of different places is exactly right. As Tim from Bridgeport, Connecticut writes, I have been listening to your teachings on the book of Genesis, chapter 4 in the lineage of Cain. It states that some of his descendants were metal forgers and music instrument makers. Then in chapter 6, it mentions the Nephilim. I heard it taught somewhere that the fallen angels taught man those trades. In your opinion, could this possibly be true? I can't find it in Scripture. Well, it's a good question. I think that's a huge presumption and jump that people will make, but I think the flow of thought is important. Uh, The chapter opens with Cain and Abel coming to God in worship. Uh, God is pleased with the worship of Abel, and the New Testament tells us because he came in faith. Well, what is faith? Faith is a response to what God has revealed. And so a person can't respond in faith until they know what it is that God wants. And up until this time, uh, God had made it very clear that when you come to him, you come on the basis of blood because the wages of sin is death. And that was taught to Cain and Abel's parents, Adam and Eve, when they tried to create their own covering for the shame and guilt of sin by sowing fig leaves together God himself allowed the first death to enter into the universe, and he killed animals. Uh, How many, we don't know, but it is in the plural that God uh, clothed them with skins of um, uh, animal skins, and it was sending a very important message that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And then the chapter begins to unfold. Cain gets a wife, uh, and you see a lot during this time in terms of what the culture was like. There was a certain indifference in terms of people's response to God. 
then people began to call on the Lord. Why had they not done that before? There was a spirit of ingratitude. And, and then you find some of the uh, descendants of Cain, and some of the things they did weren't all evil per se. Certainly there are some evil that is highlighted, but it says here in verse 20, And Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So this guy, Ada, uh, who had this son, Jabel, um, became the father or the inventor of this new way of life. He basically dominates. He starts the cattle business, as we might say. Uh, today, we might say he, he con- cornered the market. He sewed up the cattle business, and, and marketing seemed to be his specialty. And then it says in the next verse, and his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. And so uh, he used the harp and the organ and stringed and wind instruments. Those were his idea. And certainly God has his music and the devil has his. So again, these very instruments uh, are mentioned in Scripture. They can be used for good or for evil. Just depends on a person's heart. And then verse 22, uh, which is kind of the focus of where your question has come. As for Zillah. She also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And so this man's specialty was not marketing and the cattle business or music, but metal. Uh, we might say he introduced the industrial revelation. He made metal usable. He learned how to mine the ore and furnace it so that it could be used in a good way. So some of these things are really blessings from God, but what happens is you read through the chapter is the descendants of Cain get progressively worse, and there's no intervention at this point on the behalf of, of fallen uh, demons who are cohabiting with men. That that's the end result where people get so far from God that uh, it sinks into real wickedness. And so, as you read the chapter. Lamech said to his wives, and so you have this guy, Lamech, who really in many ways typifies Cain's people, and they're just immoral. And so you see the first bigamists and polygamists beginning to unfold at this time in human history. And of course, it's during the same time that Enoch uh, comes uh, to the forefront, and he's a man who walks with God, and so he becomes a picture of the days of what it's like before the rapture. And of course, then after the rapture, judgment will be like the world has never seen it. And so there's a lot here. There's a lot that pictures the day that we're living in because the New Testament teaches, just like Cain was an apostate and the New Testament isolates him as such. So we have divine commentary on Cain The New Testament warns that at the end of time, apostasy will increase. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. The faith being articular here, meaning the body of truth, what we call the Bible, uh, paying attentions to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And that's really our day. There are things that are happening in our day that are really supernaturally evil, in what they are creating, the kind of atmosphere that is unfolding in the culture. You know, for for people to call a boy a girl or a girl a boy, uh, for people to say that this is normal behavior, that this is behavior that we should esteem, that we should 
uh, say is okay, that uh, we need to protect it legally, uh, things that God says are, are just wrong. Um, this is the pathetic hour that we live in, and we were just talking in our staff meeting before we came up here. Uh, we have a staff meeting where the various pastors and directors meet on every Tuesday morning, and we left that, and I came straight up here virtually. And uh, yesterday, the Biden administration, uh, Health and Human Resources, uh, um, redefined sex as non-biological and a new anti-discrimination rule. So sex is not determined by your biology, the way God created you. Uh, now it is redefined based on what you think you are. And it's really sad. You know, you see a mother who dresses a little boy like a girl because she believes she's a, he is a, a girl. I mean, this is like child abuse of the worst kind. And I know uh, many of you have called uh, the Columbia City Council. And if you have in, want information on that, you can go to communitybiblechurch.us and you can click on one of the boxes on the home page. And, of course, they had their first reading last Tuesday for a new ordinance that will basically make it illegal, and they threaten with police action in the ordinance that if someone does what they call reparative therapy, so like if someone came into my office or if you were a Christian counselor and someone says, you know, I'm really struggling with uh, my um, heterosexuality, uh, I think maybe I'm a homosexual, and I, I don't know what to do, and um, and they come to you for help. If you say, well, look, it's no mystery. God has created us to be heterosexual, and homosexuality is a deviant behavior. If someone comes in and says, you know, my son here, my teenager son, he, he's 14, and he's convinced that he might be a girl, and he wants to, you know, uh, change his, his gender and the way he's described, and can you help him today? And and I explained to him, no, God created you male and female. There's no such thing as transgenderism and what you are dealing with, the Scripture addresses. And, well, that's going to be illegal for you to give that kind of counsel if you're a Christian counselor, a pastor in Columbia. You say, well, that's up in Columbia. We're down here in Beaufort. It will be Charleston next. It will be Beaufort County next. And so if you're a Christian, you're listening to me today. I don't know if they're going to do the second reading tonight or a week from tonight. We can't seem to get a definitive answer. Last week it was supposed to be tonight. And I know they've been covered over with emails and phone calls from people in Community Bible Church, and we're just calling as concerned citizens. Now, if they ask where you're from, don't be afraid to say, tell them the truth, we're from Beaufort. But I would suggest that you be as wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove and don't offer any information that you don't have to offer, but call as a concerned citizen. Go to communitybiblechurch.us. Today's the day to do it. Tomorrow might be too late. And if this ordinance passes, it's going to be a huge issue. I mean, people are going to be arrested. I'm sure there will be court cases and everything else. But this is the kind of nonsense the Biden administration wants to protect. You know, and this is what we talked about during the whole election season over who was going to be the president. And look, I, 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 did, I wouldn't vote for Trump just because he's a Republican 
The reason I voted for him is because he best reflected God's value system that's taught in the scripture. And of course, Biden ran as a moderate. He's anything but moderate. He has instituted the most liberal left agenda that this country has ever seen. And so even yesterday, coming out to redefine sex as non-biological in their new anti-discrimination rule change. This is the kind of uh, weirdness and evil and doctrines of demons that are coming down the pike in the day that we live in. And we need to speak up as Christians. This is your hour to do it. And if you haven't called those people, go to our website. You can call them. You can email them. Don't be mean. Don't be ugly. These folks are lost. They need Christ. They need to be forgiven. Think of them as made in the image of God, but just deeply deceived. But they need to hear your voice. And if they hear enough people's voices, maybe they won't pass this ordinance. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we've got a listener in Savannah on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning, Carl Brogy and Rick Poshner. My question is, you never heard that program, the Francis and French program, the Donnie Swarter and Jimmy Swarter has? Well, I email them, right? And they say that, like, they, they teach that at the prodigal son, you know, if he didn't repent from his sin, that he would have lost his salvation. Or if the, you know, or at the, the Judas, you know, he was saved, but then they say that he, that he, didn't, he didn't repent. From his sin, that would have, would have gotten lost. Also, so what do you think about that? Well, Jimmy Swaggart's son is Donnie Swaggart, and you know I I haven't followed either of these guys in a long time, but I did back in the 1980s when he was visiting prostitutes. You know, one hour and three hours later, he'd be on the stage to preach a sermon, and I always viewed him as a fake because you know he appealed to people's emotions, not with truth. It's okay to get emotional over the scriptures as long as we're being driven by the scriptures. But he was getting emotional, but not based on the authority of God's word. And I thought, this guy's a phony, and he's good at it, and he knows how to make people cry. And it was really very sad. But I remember reading his theology, and of course, he's Arminian. He believes that you can lose your salvation, And, of course, the Bible does not teach you can lose your salvation. The Bible teaches that once we're saved, we are eternally secure. And so in the issue with Judas, uh, he's called the son of perdition. Judas died and went to hell not because he had salvation and lost it, but because he never came to faith in Christ. And so it's the peak of his rebellion there at the Lord's Supper where he takes the sop and Satan is given permission to enter into him. You can read about it in John 13. But we must not forget that it's not like Judas was a believer and then lost his salvation. He was never a believer. He is typical of the coming Antichrist who comes as an angel of light, so to speak. He comes as a representative of God, but he doesn't truly represent the living God. And so if you remember on that day when Jesus did the miracle of feeding 5,000 
heads of households. So probably we're looking at 20,000 people that he fed there at Bethsaida. And it's a miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. But what's unique to the Gospel of John is that you have a sermon that follows the next day in Capernaum, which became the headquarters of Christ. And so Capernaum, he gave the bread of life discourse. And so these things, it says he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So the sermon that followed wasn't to 20,000 people. It was to a group of people, maybe a couple hundred there in and around the synagogue. And uh, Jesus said this statement about Judas, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew, I'm reading John 6, 64, if you're interested. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who would not believe, and who it was who would betray him. So Judas was never a believer. He was never regenerated by God. And that's why he died and went to hell. To take the parable in Luke 15, and it's really a, maybe it's one parable with three parts to it, however you want to look at it. The parable of the lost coin, where a woman loses a coin off of her headdress and she looks everywhere for it. And then finally, she she finds it. And it's a picture really of God, the Holy Spirit, who who looks and searches the heart and reveals uh, truth to us, for he is the one who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then um, you also have the parable of the lost sheep, which is a picture of the Lord Jesus, where uh, one sheep goes off out of the 100, and how they rejoice like the woman with the lost coin, really a picture of God the Son. And then a picture of the father in the picture of the prodigal son, or we might even say prodigal sons. Uh, I know those titles, obviously, most of you listening realize those are put in by the publishers. So I have the NAS, and depending um, on what edition of a Bible you're using, what publisher put it out, it might use different uh, little chapter headings or paragraph headings. And so they call this the prodigal son. Maybe it would be better to have termed it the prodigal sons because both are lost. But one, of course, in his rebellion goes off, uh, lives with the pigs, feeding on the food that the pigs eat. He realizes this Jewish man that my, even my father's servants were better off. What have I done? How foolish am I? And he rehearses in his mind the confession that he'll give to his dad and not worthy to be called your son, but you can see the, the father is looking, he's waiting, he recognizes his son in the distance, and he greets him with open arms and throws a feast for him. So this is a son who repented, who came to faith. And that, that's the point of the parable, because you have to look at the larger section of Scripture. It's like with a number of parables, like people, someone called in, I think, two weeks ago on the parable of the man who goes out and he sows seed, and they said, well, one person that I heard preach this passage said the first seed was an unbeliever, the next two seeds were people who are out of fellowship with God, and the third, the fourth seed represents the spirit-filled, born-again Christian. And again, if you isolate that from the other Gospels, where in all three synoptics you discover 
uh, this particular parable and you put them together, clearly that's not the point. But even if you put it in the larger context in Matthew 13, where it's listed with the kingdom parables, where Jesus actually told a whole series of parables on the single sermon that he gave, there's a theme that runs through each one and namely two groups of people, those who are saved, those who are lost. And so the first three soils describe an unbeliever, the fourth soil, a believer. And so when you put the parable, if you want to call it a parable of the prodigal son, uh, in, uh, and I say that, it is, a, it is parabolic, but the question is, is this one parable or three? It doesn't matter. The, the flow of the argument is the same that in each case you have a coin, you have a sheep, you have a son uh, that is lost and they are found and heaven rejoices because there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who needs repentance than over 99 that need no repentance. And of course, the other son, you know, he's self-righteous and he has an equal problem and his need for repentance is not from going out and, you know, living a, a quote-unquote worldly life with women and drink or whatever expressions that might have been seen in this prodigal's life. He's a self-righteous person and thinks he's good enough to get into heaven. And in many ways, he represents the Pharisees who are listening on this particular occasion as well. So it has nothing to do with it. Look, at Jimmy Swaggart and Donnie Swaggart's theology is just appalling. It's poor. I wouldn't listen to five minutes of those guys preaching. They're phonies, they're fakes, they're prosperity theologians. They don't represent historical biblical truth. But we live in a day where, because people are so untaught, they gravitate to emotionalism. And my wife and I were reading yesterday about uh, these two women who are married to each other. And one is a uh, Presbyterian pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA, and I guess she's the wife in the this lesbian relationship. And then her, quote-unquote, husband, she's a pastor right down the street at the Episcopal Church. And, of course, uh, they both have Beth Moore Bible studies in their church. Huh, I'm not surprised because there's a woman who doesn't deal in truth. She deals in emotionalism. But the church today is so undertaught, they can't discern between good and evil. And uh, they respond to this, quote-unquote, powerful preacher who's emotional, but she's not very straight biblically. All right, good question. Let's keep going. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Darina from Augusta, Georgia, writes, In the NASB version of the Bible, Psalm 138.2 says, For you have made your word great according to all your name." In other translations, for example, the KGV, KJV of the Bible, the same verse is translated as, For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Which translation is more accurate according to the original Hebrew, and what exactly does this verse mean? Well, actually, they're both correct. And so sometimes you come into a Hebrew construction where it's difficult when you put it from the original language into a receptor language exactly what you want to express. So, for instance, sometimes we'll open the Bible line with, be diligent and show yourself approved of God as a workman who's not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Uh, That would be the NASB, the ESV, a number of English translations. 
where you might read another translation like the King James or the New King James where it would say, study and show yourself approved. So one says study, the other says be diligent, which is correct. They're actually both correct. Uh, He's talking about study, but not just any kind of study, a diligent study. And so you can go to the library as a student and study and spend three hours there and your mind is wandering and you know, you're distracted with this and that, you're daydreaming and you study, but it was not a diligent study. So he does say to study, and the word that is used is the kind of word in the original Koine Greek that means a a passionate, diligent study, a thoughtful study. So we're to be diligent to show ourselves approved. So which is correct? They're both correct. So when you come to Psalm 138.2, God has magnified his word above all his name. Um, Again, it's an issue of emphasis, but let's think through some terms here. According to the Hebrew custom, the name of someone basically refers to the person's authority, to their reputation. And so the name of God refers to his authority, to his reputation, just like the name of Jesus refers to his authority. In his reputation, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And that's why today we pray in the name of Jesus. It's not something we just tack on at the end of a prayer. We're praying in his authority, as John 15, 16 underscores. That's why demons are cast out in the name of Christ. That's why in Acts 10, we're baptizing in the name of Jesus. We're, we're not denying the Trinitarian formula, but... In those cases, like in Acts 10 or whatever, you, you find uh, the need to underscore Jesus's name because people had not identified with him as Lord. And so, first of all, when we think of God's name, culturally, biblically, uh, we're understanding it to refer to everything as being under his authority. Now, when you read it in the Hebrew text, there are two noun clauses that are basically side by side. And two things are being referred to rather than one. And so you could render it your word, your name, literally your word, your name side by side. And so the ESV says, for you have exalted above all things, your name and your word. So they're putting emphasis on both at once where the King James, again, two phrases side by side, you have magnified your word above your name. So here's the deal. God's name represents everything for that he stands for. And his word is the written expression of who he is. So both translations are actually correct. So when we say that God has exalted his word, uh, you know, above his name, we're basically saying it's on the same authority. It's on the same level as God himself, because the written word is, is an expression of the living word, God himself. So it's a matter of where you want to put the emphasis on the Hebrew text. And so both translations are correct. Good question. I appreciate it. Dorino from Augusta. Thanks, Dorino. Let's go to the next question. All right. Julio from Costa Rica says, I have a question in regards to the extent of pastoral disqualification. I've heard you speak on church leadership requirements. In regards to unbelieving children, you've mentioned that This disqualifies a pastor, and he should resign. I'm wondering if those children come to the Lord in the future, is this person again qualified as a pastor? What about in other cases? For example, a leader in the church commits a consensual sexual sin with someone 
from the congregation. Does this disqualify him forever? Or is there a discipline process in which he forgoes and is deemed qualified, qualified by the elders? He can then resume his office. This under the assumption that the person is penitent and desiring to live a holy life in spite of his failing. I don't know that I put it exactly as you said it, so let me comment, uh, Julio, in terms of your, your question. I think I put it more in terms of the positive realm. If you listen to my messages on the qualifications from an el- for an elder from 1 Timothy 3. And so in 1 Timothy 3, he says an overseer, um, which he defines as an elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But then he adds, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and then not a new convert? So there are some specific things that have to be in place. And so do the children have to believe? Yes and no. Depends on the age of the pastor. So interestingly, when you read the qualifications for an elder in Titus 1, for this reason I left you in Crete that you should would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So there's new churches that are being planted on the Isle of Crete. Uh, someone asked me once, well, wait a minute, that seems somewhat contradictory Paul said, not a new convert, lest he become conceited. So how could you, in a place of evangelism and church planning, establish new elders? Because they're Jews who have come to faith. They have a completed faith. So they're not totally new to the faith, so to speak. They are simply embracing what the Old Testament promised, and they heard the fulfillment of those promises when someone came to the Isle of Crete and preached the gospel. So these are Jewish men who are already mighty in Scripture, kind of like Apollos, but now their faith is completed. They're not converted from Judaism. Someone can't be a converted Jew. Uh, You don't convert. You can convert from Catholicism, say. You could call someone a converted drunk or alcoholic and that he was once a drunkard and alcoholic and he's no longer but you, you can't convert a Jew because Jew, a Jew is a person who ethnically is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is why many Messianic Jews would refer to themselves as completed Jews. In either case, I, for this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe. Now, it's interesting because Titus is much older than his young son in the faith, Timothy. And so there is a certain expectation, and especially, too, since he's going to an island where there's a Jewish population, and he's able to immediately select uh, new converts, so to speak, to the Christian faith, and that their faith of the Old Testament has been completed. So you're going to have people who have the potential to have faithful children or children who believe. And so, you know, when I went into the ministry at the age of, you know, uh, well, I was 23, but I then became uh, an elder in a church in Texas, a church that unfortunately has gone south. Beth Moore preached in it last Sunday. 
we had a policy. I wrote the position paper for the church on the role of men and women in the church, and we agreed as a congregation, as presented from the elder board through my hand, they gave me the privilege of writing it, that um, nothing like that would ever happen. This is why the elders are to guard the ship, because people can sneak in who, you know, are not faithful to the word of God. And this is why one of the qualifications for an elder is that they must be sound in doctrine. But my children were just little, you know, seven and eight years old, my two oldest sons, when I started as an elder in that church. But did I have to have control over my household? Absolutely. Because if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And as the years went, if my children rejected the faith and walked away from the faith, then I could still serve in full-time ministry, but not as a pastor. Now, the second half of your question concerns a pastor who's been involved in some kind of sexual immorality. Can he be restored to ministry? Well, potentially, but I would say in most cases, unlikely, he can be restored to service because God can save anyone out of any kind of background and bring them into full-time ministry. But once you're in full-time ministry, and if you have a huge moral defection from the faith, you are immediately required to step down as a pastor. This is not something the church needs to pray about. If their pastor is caught up in adultery or some kind of um, relationship that is unfaithful to the truth of Scripture and to his marriage, he needs to immediately step down. It has nothing to do with being forgiven. God can forgive anything. It has everything to do with being qualified. And so could the person requalify? Potentially, but it would be a long time. You know, most Protestant denominations, at least who are faithful to the scriptures, and many are not in our day, would usually require a minimum of five years before the person could even be reconsidered. But let's just say I was unfaithful to my wife. I would destroy the reputation uh, that God has given me. And I could never really come back and pastor Community Bible Church. They would say, that guy's a big hypocrite. You know, he used to be their senior pastor. Now, Now they have him back. He's a pastor now. No, look, you have to have a good reputation also with those who are on the outside. With those who are on the outside. That's talking about unbelievers. And you don't want to give them a reason to point the finger. So it's not an issue of forgiveness. It's not an issue of being able to use your gifts, but you might use them in a different capacity and not as an elder, not as a pastor of the local assembly. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Um, So let me, let me, let me, um, while we're here, since the question before dealt with Jimmy Swaggart. So Jimmy Swagger gets up there, and he basically says the devil made him do it. And so he gets Oral Roberts to pray over him to cast out the demons. So it really wasn't his fault. And what did he do? Within two weeks, he was back up in the pulpit. Now, he went from massive crowds to, you know, a few hundred, because most people had lost faith in him. But, you know, he passed the baton to his son eventually, and Jimmy Swagger, I mean, he's got to be in his 80s now. I don't know. Um, But he lost all credibility, and the way it was handled was totally reprehensible and not consistent with the Scripture. All right, let's go to the next one. All right. Anna from Ridgeland says, When Satan fell, how how could he have done that if he was an angel in heaven? Also, when Saul went to the witch to call up Samuel, was Samuel in heaven? 
And if he was, how could the witches, uh, the evil witches, that is, penetrate heaven, which is perfect? How could God allow this? Well, the fall of Satan is recorded in two central passages, Isaiah 14, and 14 times 2 is 28, so it's easy to remember, Ezekiel 28. So Satan is once named Lucifer, it means shining one, uh, morning star, you could put it. And the King James tries to attach a name to the Hebrew. Uh, many translations interpret the name. Both are correct. In either case, the five I will statements are found in Isaiah 14, a description of what he was like as an anointed cherub, a holy, special leadership angel that God had given him who wanted to become like God, wanted to take the place of God. Uh, how could he do that? Because angels are persons. Now, angels are not human persons. In fact, we have um, uh, we are made in a way that we will actually judge and rule over the angels someday, the Scripture teaches. For a short period of time, we're under the angels, but God created man above the angels. And angels, though, are people, they're persons in the sense, not human persons, but they're persons that they have the characteristics that we have, namely mind, emotion, and will. So they are free moral agents, and they had the opportunity, a testing period that would seal their decision for all of eternity. And they rebelled against the living God. And so now there are two large groups of angels. Uh, one is holy angels and the other are fallen angels. So there's, and then you can take the fallen angels and you can subdivide them further. There are some fallen angels that have freedom, for instance, as Ephesians 6, as Daniel 10 illustrates to wage war in the heavenly places. There are some fallen angels that will never wage any war again. They are in eternal chains in a place called Tartarus, a certain section of hell. And then there is another group of fallen angels who are in the abyss. Uh, They are angels who committed an act of type that God determined that they would not, uh, at this point in human history, further taunt and tempt men. Uh, So if you remember when Jesus dealt with the two Gadarene demoniacs, their plea was that you don't send us into the abyss because they know that their ministry of hatred and evil would would stop. But there's coming a day in the future when the abyss is going to be open during the time of the Great Tribulation and they'll be reactivated for a period of time to be able to promote their evil. So under fallen angels, there's different groups and And just like holy angels, they are ordered, they're ranked, and so forth. So Satan was a free moral agent, and so that's how it could happen. Now, it can't happen to humans in that way. Angels are unredeemable, and it's often a question people ask, well, why is it that angels can't be redeemed, but man can? Again, I have a whole course on this. It's called Angelology. We deal with holy angels. We deal with fallen angels, and And this is an important realm of theology that every Christian should study. In either case, my argument in that course is that angels lived in a place where there was no sin in the universe at all, so the consequences were greater for them than for the fall of man. Evil had already entered into the universe when man fell. 
So you have a fallen angel once Lucifer. We think of Lucifer as often as an evil name. It's actually was his great pre-fallen name, uh, but now Satan. And Satan, the devil, and there's all kinds of names attributed to him and titles given to him. Uh, Sin had already entered into the universe, and he tempts man. Now, in reference to Samuel, he's not in heaven uh, when that event transpires with Saul. He's in Sheol. So when an Old Testament saint died, he went to Sheol. And there were two compartments of Sheol that's described in the Scripture. Sheol is, there's a righteous section and there's a fallen section. Jesus tells actually a parable based on this of the rich man who dies and goes to Hades. He's in unrighteous Sheol. And then the uh, man Lazarus who dies and he goes to Abraham's bosom, another term for righteous Sheol. So the rich man who's an unbeliever, he's an unrighteous Sheol. Lazarus, the believer, he's in righteous Sheol. And that's where Samuel was. And so that all changed after the ascension. Ephesians indicates that Christ emptied out Sheol such that today to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You immediately go into heaven. So it was not until in time and space that Christ actually physically, literally paid for our sin, then with his own blood cleansed heaven, that God's people at the moment of death go into what we call today the New Jerusalem. That was not true before they went to Sheol, again, righteous Sheol. It was also called paradise. It was also called Abraham's bosom. The name paradise continues under the New Jerusalem. So Paul says he's caught up into the third heaven, into paradise, paradisus. And so that term continues to describe the New Jerusalem in such an appropriate descriptive term. And even today, the New Jerusalem, that's just part of the future thing that God has planned because someday the current heaven and earth is going to be destroyed and burned with fire. God's going to create a new earth. And then the New Jerusalem, where your loved ones are, that whole city will come down and become the capital city on a new planet, a new earth. And you could call, the, I suppose, the whole ball of wax heaven. So, um, so Samuel was not in heaven, didn't leave heaven. He was in Sheol, so very, very, very different. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Don from Hardyville writes, would you please explain so I can explain that baptism does not save in 1 Peter 3.21, where it says corresponding to that, Jesus' sacrifice and then Noah and the salvation of his family from the flood, Baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, I do address this issue in our basic discipleship course that might be worth uh, your consideration. Uh, We have a course at Community Bible Church called the Discovery Class, and it's a 45-week class. We're getting ready to open it up when we fully reopen all of our adult Bible fellowships coming here in just a few weeks uh, with with that said, D, um, there's a handout that's available right now that I think you would find very, very useful, and it walks through uh, this verse. We know in the broad sense, obviously, that baptism does not wash away sin. It does not uh, make a person a Christian. 
you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. You obviously know this, that we're saved by grace through faith, not of good works. In Matthew 3, which we cover in the handout, and by the way, it's 20 pages long, but I walk through virtually every single passage that addresses the subject of baptism. And there have always been groups that have uh, made baptism part of the plan of salvation. And this is one of the classic verses that they use. They use Acts 2.38. They use John 3. They use Romans 6. They use 1 Peter 3. Uh, But again, in the broad scope of things, uh, baptism is called as an act of righteousness by the Lord Jesus and or in Matthew's gospel of the Lord Jesus when he gets baptized. And then uh, we're told in Titus that we're not saved on the basis of deeds done in righteousness. So the scripture is clear that works do not in any way, shape or form save. So Peter says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the key here is the phrase corresponding to that. And the word corresponding is the Greek word antitupos, and it gives us our Greek, our English word antitype, antitype. And a number of translations, New King James, uh, King James, YLT, a number of translations don't put corresponding to that, but they just write antitype. There is also an antitype that now saves us, baptism. And then this parenthetical expression, not the removal of filth from the flesh, uh, but the appeal to God for uh, a good conscience. So baptism or immersion is an antitype or a mirror image of an earlier type. And so he's been in this dialogue about Noah's Ark and the flood, which is a type. It's a picture. It's a prophecy of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And I have a whole message on that in my series on First Peter. So Peter does not say that baptism saves us, but that baptism corresponds, or I think the Net Bible says it prefigures, and that it symbolizes or pictures an ant- as an antitype of what does save us. So a type would be an Old Testament picture. You could look at it in terms of a stamp. If the stamp is the type, if you take that stamp and you press it on a piece of paper, the image that's left on the paper would be the antitype, the corresponding image. And so Peter is very careful here to say that it's not the actual water of baptism that saves us, but rather the spiritual reality behind the immersion itself. Water on the body or the body placed in water can't remove the stain of sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus we sing can cleanse us. In 1 John and 1, 7 and following underscores that. So it's not your baptism that saves you, but it's appealing to God in faith for new life that he provides through the death, burial, and resurrection. And so when a person is baptized or immersed, which is what the Greek word baptizo means, they're picturing this truth. You're brought under the water and up, and it's a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. So just to take all the air out of the balloon, if someone asks what saves, you can save the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, he doesn't say gospel saves, but the gospel saves. It's articular. The word gospel or angelion just means good news, and it can be used in a general sense in the New Testament even 
to refer to different kinds of good news. Just like in the New Testament era, Evangelion gospel could refer to all kinds of good news. A soldier's good news might be the war is over. Um, a student's good news is they passed the exam. A parent's good news is they had a baby. It just meant good news. But when the article is placed in front of it, the gospel, then he's referring to a specific good news. And so Paul says the gospel is the power of God to save you. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance, the gospel. Well, what's the, the gospel? If the gospel is the power of God to save us, I want to know what it is. He goes on to define it. That Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. In fact, in that same epistle, in 1 Corinthians 1.17, he tells us, Christ did not send me to um, baptize, but to preach the gospel. So he clearly separates baptism from the gospel, from the death, burial, and the resurrection. So anyone who infuses a baptism into the plan of salvation has misrepresented the Bible. They are actually guilty of the error that the false teachers brought into the Galatian church, where there it wasn't baptism, it was circumcision. They said you also had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul says, that's another gospel, that's a different gospel, that's a false gospel, and anyone who delivers to you, even an angel from heaven, a gospel contrary to the one that we have preached, he is to be accursed. He is to be anathema. Uh, He's preaching a different message. For if righteousness comes through the law, Paul will argue in the same epistle, then Christ is dead in vain. His death is meaningless, it's not complete, it's not able to save you. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Bonnie from Okatee writes, I'm hearing much talk about the series on TV called The Chosen. People are either raving about this or saying, don't watch because it's inaccurate. Everyone I've heard this from are Christians. Please give us your insight. We respect your wisdom. Well, I can't tell you that I've watched the new season that has come out. And I understand, I think starting at Easter, they began to unfold season number two. Uh, But I did see the first season. Now, there are certain uh, liberalities uh, that are taken in the production of this series that don't necessarily reflect Scripture. But when they are trying to reflect Scripture, I've yet to see any inaccuracy. So, you know, if they uh, sit in someone's home and they're having a dinner and they're making a comment on the meal and what they're eating, obviously um, in that context, it's not specifically recorded in the Bible. So there's a certain, you know, uh, freedom that they're taking just to make the whole thing flow, as it were. Um, You know, they had this one uh, uh, session where, Christ is kind of like living out in this field and all these kids come and he's making little toys and, you know, he gives them to the kids and he's speaking to them about the Bible and about truth and the kids are following them and and they're trying to drive home a point among other things that, you know, the kingdom of God uh, is open to children. Don't prevent the children from coming to me for as such is the kingdom of God, that they're teachable, they're soft, they're pliable, 
and that you should not brush them off as a nuisance. So they're trying to communicate a biblical truth. Now, is there a passage of scripture when Jesus was out in a field and he made little toys and I think he made a little wooden dollhouse for the girl, if I remember it, I haven't seen it in like a year or so. And no, of course not. So that's extra biblical, we might say. And so they're trying to communicate a biblical message, uh, but not necessarily uh, doing everything recorded from Scripture. So if that's offensive to you, then I'd say don't watch it. If you know your Bible well enough where you're not confused by that, oh, did you do you know that in the Bible Jesus made wooden dollhouses? He made one for a little girl. Well, you know, if that's confusing to you because you don't haven't read the Bible, then it might be it might be a problem. So uh, I've yet to see anything, at least in the first season, that was like anti-scriptural. Uh, again, they are, you know, creating certain scenes like with Nicodemus. Did it happen that way? Maybe it happened at night. Did it happen in the house? Did it happen out in the field? We, we don't know. The scripture doesn't lend that type of specificity. Uh, it, there's no need to, to communicate the message. So again, they're taking a certain license. But in fact, there's a number of Jewish customs that I thought they did an excellent job on that maybe the average viewer wouldn't pick up on, but I thought, wow, man, they they really are in tune to some of the uh, Jewish uh, customs and the like that were expressed in that day, and they brought those into the background in terms of things that were being said and how things were handled and so forth. So they, they, they did a really pretty creative job. I, I personally didn't like Matthew who played in that he just seemed a little like he was odd like you know oh he's a brainiac um you know he knows numbers inside and out but he, so he's kind of an oddball well you know i don't know I, I don't think i would have pictured him uh in that vein he he became a real leader a real thinker gave us one of the new testament gospels So, you know, sometimes we might not like the way they would portray certain characters. uh, But again, they're using a certain, you know, artist's freedom to try to create these movies. But overall, I think they're very well done. And hopefully they can be a springboard in which to share the gospel. It's kind of like a movie that came out on the life of Christ years ago. And there was a number of inaccuracies in it. Like in the arrest scene, I think they, it was either four or five soldiers, I'd have to see it again, who came to arrest Christ. When the Bible says a great multitude came to arrest Christ, and elsewhere it says a Roman battalion came to arrest him. So um, was I opposed to the movie? No, I saw it as an opportunity to share the gospel and the meaning of Christ's death and, and what he accomplished for us. And I think you could do the same with this production. These are Christian people who are trying to honor the Lord and uh, do what's pleasing to him. And look, there's so much garbage in the day that we live in. Uh, This is a fresh uh, alternative for a number of families, Christian and non-Christian alike. We're out of time, but thanks today for joining us for the Bible line. If you have questions, you can submit them at searchthescriptures.org. There's a drop-down menu, ask Dr. Berge a question. And we'll do our best to respond. Have a great day as you walk with Christ.